Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. My name is Alistair Bain and as always I'm joined today by Stuart Flaherty. Stuart, how's it going mate? Good Alistair. So folks, we're at the quarter-final stage of Euro 96. If you haven't uh, caught up with the previous round you can do so in our archives. Uh, check out obviously all of those match reports over at RetroFootballAnalysis.com. Um, Real interesting ties here, Stu. We'll, we'll start off with uh, the left side of the draw, as it was. Uh, the first match of the left-hand side was France and Netherlands. Um, initial thoughts going at this one, Stu, from both sides. I know we sort of covered their, their initial form, but what were your, uh, you know, having watched these back, what were your initial thoughts going at this one? Uh, going into the game, I thought France were going to batter them, being honest. Um I think we've talked before about the French defence. Uh, phenomenal players, great athletes. Two goals in 10 games in qualifying. Continue to play well in the group stage. And Holland coming in off being caned 4-1 by England. <laughs> well, they're, they're set up with alter slightly for this match. We'd have Clivert uh, come into the centre-forward position, moving Bearcat into a deeper role. Uh, Koku would come in as a left-winger. Uh, Cruyff would remain on the right-hand side, two-man midfield, essentially, of Vichka and De Boer. Uh, and then uh, a fantasy football favourite, De Kock, uh, <laughs> centre-half. Um, was this a change of shape, Stewie? I think it was, you know. I think it, it was a more defensive shape, but when they had the ball and when they had the run of possession, I feel like it did switch a bit because... They were playing 3-4-3 diamond throughout the group stages Mm -hmm. and obviously England exposed that and then some. And I think what they did here is instead of having Seedorf or a midfielder at the base of the diamond, they brought in De Kock and they had Blind. So they had two centre-backs. And I think especially in the first half, they played uh, to the point that when France came forward, they settled into the back line and it was a back four. With that said, when they won the ball, it looked like Blind and De Kock was... uh, striding out as a midfielder and it was back to that 3-4-3 diamond shape another thing that was interesting is Bergkamp's been one of their best players if not their best player all tournament at centre forward and he's moved him back to midfield Um, and obviously some of that is Clybert getting him in the team but I also wonder if um, Teddy Sheringham had uh, something to do with it and what I mean by that is when England beat Holland the big big advantage England had is it was uh, 4v4 in midfield mm-hmm. and then as you can see on the game report on the website with the video clip Sheringham just dropped in the centre mid time and time and time again and gave England a man advantage and came in unmarked and I, I do wonder if that, that joy Sheringham had as a withdrawn striker maybe thought you know if it didn't create the idea maybe sped along the idea from Hiddick to move Bergkamp further back and get him more involved even if in less dangerous positions it's interesting, Stu, because I had going into this tournament in my head that Bergkamp, essentially, was a midfielder, right? This is somewhat his time at Arsenal. Yes, he's been more an advanced role. However, if we look at his time, uh, the few seasons leading up to this, he's pretty much played as a striker, right? Certainly in the Arsenal team leading up to this, he was a second forward, but right for the most part. Do you think they maybe missed a beat here by maybe just going with two strikers? I know it changes their shape slightly. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I mean, we have seen in this tournament so far, though, England get hurt by going with two strikers and Switzerland exposing their four-man midfield and the, the success they had against Holland. Yes, it was with two strikers, but 
we saw in the videos how far back Sheringham came. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, so the reason I bring it up, Stu, is Francis' shape stays fairly similar. Um, they've obviously got the flat back four. Uh, Turan comes back into starting berth. They've got Karambu, Deschamps and Garana midfield. Zidane, Jorka F at the two number 10s, essentially, with Loco up front. So I think for me, really, the only major uh, spaces here is obviously on the outsides, but considering um, Holland already have players in those areas, it, it, it would almost seem counterintuitive, right, to try and go man for man in there, almost try and pass, you know, sort of bypass it, right, and go with, go with two forwards. What, what do you think about that? No, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Yeah, so it's not what I was thinking when I was watching it, but that train of logic certainly works. I just think this is such a. I mean, I, we've mentioned a couple of times, obviously, defensively solid team, but it's their ability to counter forward. I thought it's just, just rang so impressive in this game that the speed of Carambu, the transition ability of Deschamps to find a forward pass. I mean, the lad Loco up front has done more miles <laughs> in this. Yeah. In this match than uh, than most, you know, it's it's a it's a power of work that they do as well as having that quality. Yeah, the French striker situation is interesting, right? Because they got Loco who can move and cover ground, and they've got Dugarry who's a big physical, you know, target man, and they're total opposites, and he's switching between the two as the mm-hmm. tournament goes on. So the the sort of flow of this match, Stewie's one where. Um, it's a fairly even match obviously you know the way the scoreline ends it, it being 0-0 and goes all the way to penalties but the, if you look at the flow of the match um, Holland have a bit of a dead period towards the end of the first and the start of the second but pretty much their, their chance creation overall somewhat levels out the interesting one for me here though Stewie is Holland have had over 18 attacks in every game in the group stages and in this match, it was the first time they'd come up against a, a team that limited them to less than 18 attacks, right? They only had 13. But France actually had more attacks overall than them as well. Again, yeah. are we looking at a Dutch team here that just ran out of ideas in the end and was just you know moving the ball for moving the ball's sake? Uh, do you know what? I don't think so. And it was the strangest thing in the second half because I, I thought France... Well, without reading the stats, I thought France were the better team in the first half, flash first first hour of the game, maybe. And then as the game went on, he subs off Bergkamp pretty early, and then he subs off Cruyff. And I remember thinking, like, that's probably his two best attackers so right. far this tournament. Maybe Kleibert's in there, but he was coming off the bench. That's two really strange subs, and it seemed to me that he'd made them to be stronger defensively. Mm-hmm. But then they start to come on really strong. And uh, in the 83rd minute, France are lucky as hell because um, that ball hits Desai's hand mm-hmm. and the ref gives it as a free kick on the edge of the area and the replays show you clear as day. It would have been an 83rd minute penalty to give Holland a 1-0 lead. Mm-hmm. And then another play laid on when uh, uh, Cliver sort of makes a run out wide, uh, Sadoff runs in behind, gets the ball and he's clean through. He's 6-8 yards out, 1v1 with a keeper. And it gets saved, um, and they also look to be playing quite well in extra time. So, I don't, I can't quite figure out when the momentum shifted, but I do think there was a point in that game where Holland started to have a real run at winning it. Yeah, 
No, for sure. And then obviously we get into, like you mentioned, we get into extra time. Again, if we look at the chance creation in, in that piece, it, it certainly was uh, France's, um, I guess, half, if you like, you know, for the for that 30 minutes um, in terms of they, they started to really kick on and, and they create a number of chances in the, the extra time. Obviously, they'd have the big chance as well uh, with to Dan squaring it to Jorkiev in the box and, and obviously, they, like you mentioned, the big save. Yeah. Like I say, I, I think for me, Stu, it would have been harsh, I think, for this to have been a, let's say, a 2-0 France. I think maybe a 1-0 victory, I think, definitely would have been fair. I think a yeah. Holland victory in regulation time, I think, probably would have been unfair, right? You know, given the flow of it all. But, you know, given the way things ended, uh, and obviously going out and set uh, the penalty kicks, rather, obviously never, never a nice way to do it. But I certainly think the best team uh, best team won here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a contrast here because you've got to, um, you've got to give Gus Hitting some credit here um, mm-hmm. for the fact that that team's been battered by England. And what does that do to him emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. And then Davids, who was great friends with Sadoff and the other Ajax lads on the team, mm-hmm. is um, sent home right. between the England game and this game. So to get the performance of this level out of the team under those circumstances is impressive. Mm-hmm. And he deserves some praise for that. But sure, sure. the fact that the team is a circus is not impressive. <laughs> and he's got to take responsibility for that. And... Honestly, I just think the mindset that Sadoff must have been in to be benched again, to have his very, very good friend sent home, to be in the middle of locker room issues, I, I, I can't separate that from the fact that Sadoff's the one who misses the penalty Right. Uh, that ends up decisive. Sure. Well, this match that we said we'd finished 0-0 after um, full-time and indeed extra time, and France would go on to win this one 5-4. So, of course, they're booked their semi-final place at Old Trafford. Um, four days later uh, they would obviously play the winners of the next quarter final which is the Czech Republic against Portugal um, this one would take place at Villa Park looking at the lineups going into this um, not a whole lot of changes from Portugal they'd obviously brought in Oceano in the last or, or certainly the last two Sorry, he started the group stages sorry he missed out in the second match and played in the third one certainly someone that caught our eye uh, when talking yeah. about this game although overall again fairly similar uh, positioning I think we're now starting to see a bit more of a rigid 4-4-2 if, if that's even a thing um, in terms of that diamond shape in midfield with the two strikers and the full backs really kicking on Secretario now is moving into the right back position obviously Dimas would continue on at, at left back Um Thoughts on this Portuguese side, Stu? I mean, this really is the strongest lineup they've got available to them, right? I mean, a decent performances. I think they're good. Yeah, I think they're good. I think they got a lot of goal for them. You know, I don't think Bayer is one of the best goalkeepers at the tournament, but I do think he's a good goalkeeper. I think Couto is an excellent centre back. Secretario, I believe, got an assist in that last group stage game. Um, Sousa can win the ball in midfield. Oceano is one of the best athletes in terms of being a defensive mid and dominating the space in the entire tournament. Costa and Figo, quality on the ball. Well, Pinto, Sapinto, you know, they're not they're not great, but they grow on you. Mm-hmm. As the tournament goes on, I, I think Portugal's a very, very strong side and the Czechs have done well to get past them here. 
Well, looking at that check side, Stu, they, they start off, um, I think probably on paper, this is lining up as a 3-4-3, but it, it certainly drops back more into a 5-4-1 at times. Um, yeah. They'd welcome back uh, Smeetcher in a starting position, obviously he'd scored the, the, the winner in the last game there. Probably, at the, I'd imagine, Stu, at the expense of Nedved, who's, who's suspended for this one. I think Nedved probably starts in front of him otherwise. Yeah, um, Nemechich obviously going into centre midfield, and I believe Suchaparik is now back in the side on this one. It's, he is. it's a solid setup, Stuart. Right? I mean, this is a clear. They understand Portugal going to have the ball. They're almost allowing them to do so. They've got Kuka, obviously, that's got the power and the strength to hold up, and two flying merchants either side of him, and Paborski and, and Smeetcher there. This is just again a, a really well organised, well structured team, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go to the the website, uh, some of the most impressive clips we have up in Game Reports are Cougar's hold-up play on his own here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, he's drawing fouls all over the place. He's carrying the ball, getting fouled, keeping hold of it. He's holding it, you know, that old drug barrel where he holds it for three to five seconds and allows people like Paborski to get level with him and get past him. I just think the Czechs aren't able to do what they do here without him. And what they do is, like you said... You know, they're back there in a 5 4 one. There's loads of the bodies between the ball and the goal. Uh, the Portuguese lift a number of... It's another thing we've got you know, clips of on the website in the game report. They lift a number of good balls up in behind. And they're just, you know, it's a combination of a deep line mm-hmm. and a very, a very alert, very athletic back four, making it real tough to break down, even though some balls are good. You know, they're getting tucked down on chest. They're leading strikers, but... There's just no room in there behind to create chances, and you know they. Uh, when you sit back and you sit deep and you need to counter, it certainly helps to have someone like Paborski on the right wing uh, as an outlet. And Paborski and the right back Latell in the first half, especially, were probably the Czech's prime attacking outlet. Um, aside of Kuka holding the ball up, and what I think is, you know. Almost genius is, you know, and simplicity is genius. But Dusan Urin, the Czech coach, is becoming the star of the tournament because he is, you know, winning at halftime, nil-nil. Mm-hmm. And his best, you know, player might be Kowalski right wing. And he's moved him central. Right. And, you know, oh, it's always tough to move somebody when they're doing so well. Um, and then within se- six minutes of, you know, the second half start, and he gets a pass, you know, kind of bundles the ball through a crowd there and scoops the ball over Bayer in one of the historic goals of the tournament right yeah this this was a, a I wanted to get your take on the technique of this one because watching it back I remember that lead up to it again being a you know I initially thought he dribbled by people but to be fair he's actually just worked the break of the ball well but it's the scoop yeah. <laughs> he's got underneath it and the height of the ball it's a, it's a crazy technique, right? And and it's almost at the goalie. I think the most telling thing for me was Bayer has absolutely no idea it's coming. I mean, he's a decent bit off his line, but I think that's because he's expecting a, a laces strike or maybe even a whipped shot in the bottom yeah. corner. This, I think what the entire, what the entire world was expecting. <laughs> really. But this this scoop just comes out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, just a, just a com- great bit of ingenuity, great bit of invention. And, um, he, and and again, this is an interesting one for discussion, Stewie. Was it deserved, right? And he, here's my sort of take against it being deserved: was there's a lot made of defensive football as if it's easy, as if you just put people back, and you know what, 
will stop goals just because there's people blocking the goal. Me and you both know that's not the case. What yep. was it? Was it Justin that they had frustrated Portugal into again almost into submission by just being good at the back? I think it was very, very impressive. You know, I'd, uh, you know, they weren't sitting in against nobodies. They were sitting against Costa and Figo, who I know the Croatia changed their team a bit, but they just hung three goals on Croatia. Mm-hmm. You know, Turkey have come into this tournament and there's games they try to sit back and defend and they got annihilated. Um, it's not an easy thing to play like this and to have the mental discipline and the courage and the ability to perform you know, I know, I know high pressing is brave. I know that's the big belief, you know, the big narrative. But, you know, when you're 1-0 up with 20 minutes left and you're the underdog in a quarterfinal of a European Championship and you're coming up with defensive players time and time again to clear the ball, that's brave too. Right. And I don't know where that's been lost uh, among a lot of football fans, but it has been. And yeah, this is absolutely a deserved win for me. Well, to, quickly to look into the numbers here, uh, and again, this is another... You know, create narratives of well, the Czechs just defended. Not the case at all. You know, we've saw in other games that that certainly wasn't the case. But even breaking this one down, this Portugal team, who again, for all intents and purposes, great in possession, lovely with the ball, they had three attacks in the second half, as did Czech Republic. They had one attack in the whole in the box the entire game, out of ten attacks in total over nine yeah. minutes. The Czechs had four attacks. Uh, two of them inside the box two of them outside the box so again if we're talking how efficient this team are how effective they are coming up with a 1-0 win here this wasn't like Portugal absolutely battered them yes they had lots of the ball but Portugal just simply couldn't do anything with it right they were almost battered into submission and worth worth mentioning that this is this is the Czech's first clean sheet at the tournament really right and they uh, they went into the the last group game against Russia mm-hmm. 2-0 up knowing that a win would guarantee them a place in the quarterfinals. Right. So if you're just going to sit in and defend the lead, you do it then, right? Right. <laughs> and they went, they ended up 3-2 down. So it's not that easy, is it? Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a great performance. You know, it was great performance. So putting them through now, uh, Stu obviously beating out, I think it's fair to say, right, one of the stronger teams left in the competition. I think that's unfair to say. Portugal on paper, obviously a good side. How does this change things, though, at the time? Put put you and I in, a, in 1996 right now. What are we thinking about this team that this was a bit of a fluke or, or is it, you know, yeah, right, a chance I don't, here? I don't think it was a fluke, but I think it means they're going to lose in the semi-final. Right. This, at this, this point, team. even watching back now through my eyes now and just taking the knowledge of the future out of it, mm-hmm. going on the performances I've been watching, I'm back in France to win this tournament right about now right so like we said folks this match would end uh, 1-0 to Czech Republic obviously putting Portugal out of the competition Uh, and like we said that would set up a semi-final in four days time between France and the Czech Republic so heading over to the other side of the bracket Stewie Um, let's start off with a big one Let's go with that one first. Obviously, the first match of the quarterfinals uh, at Wembley Stadium uh, in Spain versus England. Um, okay, let's start with the lineup on this one, Stu. How did you see the England formation in this one? Obviously, Platts coming at the side with uh, Ince missing out, suspended. How did you? How did you see this one? I saw this as a four-four-two again. Right. Um, 
And I was impressed with Platt. You know, when I remember Platt, I remember goals. Mm-hmm. I remember his Belgian World Cup game, and I remember him just having big totals of goals um, for Villa and with Sampdoria and even when he came back with Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking him of more of a Frank Lampard before Frank Lampard. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want another Chelsea reference as opposed to uh, Akanti or Makaleli. Sure. But Platt's excellent defensively here. Oh, very much so. He, he really is very, very good defensively and he's key in this game, to be honest with you. He's only in there because since is suspended. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Gascoigne's not a good defender. Right. And uh, Platt really holds things together and you know to have a player of that experience and that level of you know, ability defensively to come off the bench. It was, it was a big, big part of England getting out of this game, to be honest with you. And that, that's how I would describe England progressing here. That they got out of this game. They didn't dominate Spain. Um, it was a tough one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a tough one, right? With obviously Ince, Ince and Platt is your sort of, you know, if it's a toss up between the two, who do you go for? Because obviously Ince at the time. Is, is in an upward trajectory in his career, right? Whereas Platt arguably yeah. is in a downturn. However, I think, uh, you know, once we get to the end of this match, I would argue, Stu, that Platt's been more effective in this particular team than Ince has been, albeit Ince uh, is probably a better footballer, right? Defensively, I think Platt definitely shows more than Ince defensively. Mm-hmm. I think if you're being fair to Ince, he did play the through ball for Shearer at the score against Switzerland. Sure. And he did win the penalty mm-hmm. to open the scoring against the Dutch. So he's probably, and again, I'm saying my memory of Platt is attacking mm-hmm. irony here. Ince is probably offered a bit more going forward. Sure. Um, but yeah, but Platt, Platt was just very disciplined here and just very good and really, really, really vital. So before we get to the rest of the team, then, Stuart, I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on a, a number of the attackers in a second, but let's look at Spain real quick. They've um, altered their formation to go to a 3-5-2. Um, they've got Belsu has come back into the right side. Um, Manurin has moved centrally. Kiko and Salinas uh, up front. Obviously, neither of those two had start, start the tournament, so Javier yeah. Clemente's uh, merry-go-round of selections at a hat as he has uh, <laughs> brought this one. However, regardless of the change in eleven. Tactically, Stewie, this setup certainly gave England a lot of bother in the first half. It was nightmares. I thought, I thought Kiko was excellent. Um, you know, you, you always get told about the uh, the goal that Spain had disallowed wrongly. Mm-hmm. They're offside. I mean, there's two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> two Spanish goals that you look at the replay and you pause it when the ball's played. Um, they were onside and Kiko was one of them. And uh, another interesting part of this game is, for me, even though England win, I gave the man of the match to Sergi. Right. Uh, Gary Neville uh, is a 21-year-old right-back who has been brilliant so far in Euro 96 and looked like a veteran. And this is the first game where he looks 21. Right. And he looks young and he looks like he's getting stretched. And it was uh, you know, good for him to get out of it with a clean sheet. But it was a real, real tough matchup with Sergi coming at him here. Yeah. I think the thing for me, Stu, with Sergi, wasn't even that he got on the outside of him and put balls in because he did that. But it was his ability to drive inside in his right foot. I mean, that's just not something you'd associate with a left back, right? This is he played yeah. basically a left winger here, right? Yeah, I mean he could do it all, couldn't he? Right. He cut inside, he went at the byline, and then there's one player where 
you know, after get after getting beaten behind a couple of times, I'm sure has something to do with it. Neville stands off him and he pings a thirty yard diagonal ball to switch point of attack. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Wow, this is a lot to deal with. Sure. Well, like we said, that England set up with Platt screening the back line, Gascoy in the midfield next to him. We'd saw against Holland where England had looked to build out a little bit more. Uh, Adams and Southgate drawing midfielders towards them, building through the thirds. I think in this one, I think they perhaps looked to start that way, but certainly as the game would progress, and really England just wanted to try and get higher territory, we saw Shearer pull wide, typically onto <clears throat> pardon me, what would be England's right-hand side and Spain's left. Um, play a few more channel balls, allow Gascoigne to get higher, allow Anderton to get round them, make Manaman to get higher. I think we saw in this match, um, out of all of the key passes of which there was, let me see here, um, there was 15 for England. I th- want to say Anderton played eight of them. So, right, lots of attacking passes from him. Um, Shearer was absolutely fantastic at his hold up play in this game, right? Yeah, it was his toughest game, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was his, definitely his tough, toughest matchup because um, his, his hold up's good, his movement's good, but he he doesn't look dangerous right. like he looked in the other games, you know, and that's probably more credit to Spain than an insult to Shearer. And I think that's that's the thing here is with his hold up play being so good, obviously you, you now take away your main threat in the box. Yes, you've got Sherry on getting the box. Yes, you've got McManaman and Ander making those runs. But I just think for me it was that um, lack of territory England were able to control. And then really the, the major width in the game was, was from the full backs, right? They weren't ever really able to get uh, their McManaman and Ander on the sideline, stretch out Spain's back three. I, I just felt for the longest part here, Stu, that Spain looked comfortable because they were more patient in their possession, whereas England were a little bit faster in transition and maybe yeah. struggled to control it a bit. Fair shout, yeah. Fair. Well, uh, and the reason I bring that up is if we look at the the XG timeline, right? So if we look, that's essentially, folks, it's a graph that we have on our website and all of our data analysis that grades. Um, the team's attack and performance through the match and if we look at that graph you can see that while Spain dominated lots of the play while Spain had more attacks during the match we'd see overall um, that that Spain would have 20 attacks and England would only have 15 England's actual chance creation was higher than, than Spain's you know they had a, a bigger value therefore while Spain were shooting more when England did shoot it held more value and it held more punch to it um, the game would finish with England having a slightly higher XG, uh, 1.47 to Spain's 120. Here was the big one though, Stu, and this was <clears throat> expected goals on target. Right Now from Spain's 120, so again let's figure that's a goal and a bit, they're, they're on target um, expected goals was around about 5%. Not a great return for a team who's having lots of attacks. Does that say something maybe to... Not even a good one. Yeah, England, England's defence here. We start this, I know obviously we mentioned Neville, but you know that between Adams, um, Southgate, Seaman, obviously Pierce on the left-hand side, Platt as well obviously being that midfield role. Are we, are we starting to see here a, def, or a, a group defensive performance that, um, yes, there's Spain's got chances, but they're ultimately they're dealing with it? Yeah, I think uh, 
I think Adams, this is his best game, definitely, mm-hmm. um, of the tournament. I think Adams is England's best player in this game, actually. Um, Seaman's good again. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a good player. You know, I don't think Pierce was a, a top player on the field as such, but I do think it was probably Pierce's best game as well, mm-hmm. um, which says well how they play, but it also says to how well Spain played, right? Yeah. So like we mentioned, folks, this game would obviously finish uh, 0-0, would go to penalty kicks, and, you know, while England have obviously had the Italian United experience during this, England not being good at penalty kicks wasn't really a thing then, was it? I mean, it's it sort of became a bit of folklore, maybe after France 98, but um, watching this back, there certainly seemed... Um, a lot of tension there although what I'll say is Stu I felt the tension was more on the on the Spanish and that they looked um, you know a little bit more like they had something at stake here than England were I, I felt England looked way more confident in this uh, yeah, I, 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 do, I do assume you were uh, admitting one guy in Stuart Pearce <laughs> uh, just kind well, of you know you know Celebrating the end of it, and uh, yeah, didn't, didn't go off his head at all, did he? Yeah, yeah. carrying those Euro Italian at the um, demons around with him, so it was nice to see him get that. But yeah, I mean, every every penalty is good. Every every penalty is well placed. Um, impressive shootout, really, wasn't it? Sure. Well, like we said, Seaman make the big save uh, against Nadal to obviously win the match four two. Penalty kicks, uh, which would book England's place. Like we said, four days later in the semi-final. Now, the other quarter-final on this side of the bracket was between Germany and Croatia. Um, obviously, two of the competition's stronger sides going into it. So, again, on, probably on paper, um, I guess the most eagerly anticipated, if you like, of the quarter-finals, if you're from a neutral perspective or from Scotland. Um <laughs> This one was a bit of a bloodbath, Stuart, to be uh, to be quite frank, wasn't it? It was, uh, but before I forget and uh, we move on, speaking of bloodbaths, can we give a shout-out to the uh, Czech Republic-Portugal game where the final statistics showed a total of 50 fouls and 10 yellow cards, <laughs> which is some going. It is. <laughs> More than a foul every two minutes. But, yeah, this, uh, this game is pretty violent. You know, there is there's three early bookings. Um, there is uh, a penalty to open the scoring. Um, there's a red card. There, there's a lot going on, and very evidently they don't like each other, do they? <laughs> For sure. Well, look at the lineups uh, going at this one. Stu Germany would remain obviously with the three-five-two system. Uh, Mehmet Shaw would come into midfield, replacing Hasler. Um, we'd have. Bobic and Klinsman is the forward line. Siga and Reuter obviously remaining as the, the wing backs. Um, Helmer, Samer, and Babel at the back. Obviously, Ayuk and Moller, obviously, we mentioned in midfield next to Shaw. I think at this particular time, this is the strongest lineup Germany could put out there. I think there's probably a little bit of heavy legs for guys like Babel. You can maybe see her maybe carrying injury at this stage. Bobic certainly was carrying injury going at this one. Klinsman obviously got a bit of a whack. Klinsman was very, very lucky though to be on the park, Stewie. I think that he, I can't remember which player it was, but there was definitely a, a complete lash out after. Vlai, I believe it was Goran, Goran Vlajevic. There you go. This just didn't seem like him. 
at all, right? This Clinton is usually the guy who's fallen over having been kicked. Yeah, no, it was it was just one of those games, wasn't it? I think it took over. Everyone got into it, and yeah, it was a it was a rough one. And Klinsman was right deep in that. And I think I think the German forwards are interesting, right? Because Klinsman's got uh, three goals after this game, which puts him second in the tournament for scoring. Mm-hmm. But it's been stop start for him because yeah. uh, he misses the first game. He uh, gets two late goals in the second game. Then he shut out. You know, the team shut out in the third game mm-hmm. uh, by Italy. And then he's come here and he's scored the penalty and then he's limped off. So it's like, you've got three goals and you're a second leading scorer, but it's like you've not quite hit your momentum, strangely. And what's interesting about Germany is they've got four forwards and they're all involved. You know, Beeroff, Bobic and Kuntz have all got an assist in the group stage. Mm-hmm. So he's like, he's doing a good job of not just relying on Klinsmann to get it done. He's yeah. keeping every forward's uh, feet wet and keeping them all getting involved with either a start or an appearance off the bench. We mentioned during the last show uh, about Croatia and their rotation, our experimental side, and the disaster that was the closing game against Portugal. Obviously, they've, they've got their, their strongest 11 back out here, the, with probably the exception of Prozinecki misses out uh, this one. Boban Asanovic back in midfield, Stanic and Yarny in the wings, uh, Vlavic and Sukar up front. The back three are very impressive for me, Stu, Bilic, Yerkan and, and Stimac, just the entire tournament, they've been they've been excellent. Um, yeah. What particular did you th- see in this match as being, you know, were, were Croatia better at one thing than the Germans? Do you feel it was even? Do you think there was a more of a defensive edge uh, to the game? Yeah, just, just before we move on to the game, I remember one thing I was surprised at with the kickoff mm-hmm. and Prozanecki was suspended, but... Right. The Hassler admission was surprising to me because if you'd have asked me to name two of the better playmakers on either team coming into the game, I would have put Hassler for Germany and right. Prozanecki for Croatia. So to be without both of them sure. for a quarterfinals, it's kind of a shame, isn't it? Right. Um, but yeah, as, as the game goes in, I, I don't think any team dominated. I think it was very much a, a personnel wash in terms of systematically and tactical. I didn't see anything happening where one team had to adjust. Um, I just think two players sort of rose to the top of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm going to contradict myself because the Samer thing is somewhat systematic because he, as he has done all tournament, he comes forward from defence. He creates an extra man. He creates an overlap and he uh, makes it real tough to deal with. So he's been Germany's star. And um, Souk is just brilliant, isn't he? And that's just a talent <laughs> thing, you know. There's one point in the second half, it comes up, he's had six shots, they've all been on target. And he's got his goal and he's just, he's he's fantastic. He's Croatia's best player in the game. Um, so you, you're going star for star, Samovi Suka. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think this is a real star turn. I think, I think Sama wins the golden ball this year. Mm-hmm. Um and games like this are why because they've come into the quarterfinal here you know they're down Hassler Klinsman limps out and your sweeper has won the penalty to open the score and scored you the winner mm-hmm. um, and that's on the back of uh, three clean sheets in the group stage so Suga's goal here is the first goal Germany let up all tournament mm-hmm. and uh, I enjoy things like this at tournaments like this when your star man steps up to put his signature on a performance and and carry his team through around, you know? Yeah, for sure. No, for sure. Suka, Suka and Vlavic, I think, for me, 
I think this is a modern pair in the sense that this wasn't a big man, little man, one flicking on for the other. This was two almost split forwards at times that both had the ability to run channels but still at the same time show the quality in the box that that again a modern number nine would have and in a dribbling ability both had the ability to carry the ball and I, I just thought it was a perfect um, you know a perfect foil for each other yeah it surprised me actually over the tournament because just going back and I'm a Middlesbrough fan obviously and I'm looking forward to Boxic when uh, we go into this project and he's, he's not really a factor compared to Vlajevic is he right. in this tournament sure. Um, so we mentioned about the first goal obviously it was a penalty kick was it a penalty for you Stu? yes handball yes I think without that hand I think Sam I guess the byline cuts back for a goal scoring chance mm-hmm. so yes I do it looks soft full speed mm-hmm. but then you watch the replay and yeah so we mentioned obviously mentioned both strikers going off Um Croatia scored their goal, I believe, 51, maybe 52 minutes, Suka scores. There's a bit of a momentum shift here for, you know, maybe 20 minutes prior to this goal happening. And then just unbelievably, Germany just stiff-armed them out of the way, you know, and obviously get their, yeah. get their second goal. This And what's, what's impressive is it's two defenders, isn't it, right. that caused the second goal? Right. I was going to say, it's, it's, I think it's the antithesis of this... Um, era for me in that now we always talk about well you've got to be a great football team or a good possession based team or it's all about the technique and the tactical whereas this is a Germany side that we mentioned are battered and bruised or it's one each you know they're, they're arguably on the downturn in this match Croatia are obviously on the upward curve and then two or three minutes go by and bang they get the 2-1 the again and it's again I think for me Stu just speaks to this mentality of it doesn't matter who we have on the field we are going to win it's almost like this force of personality the Germans have got that are built up over you know last 10-15 years at this time right they're just serial winners that are able to go yeah I mean it's what success is built on isn't it it's like it's a lot of people want that sexy narrative of a four to six year build with a youth team together, but making players and getting things done in crucial moments with, you know, a lot on the line mm-hmm. is what it's all about. And Germany just do it, don't they? Well, after that goal, Stu, there would be a further seven attacks um, for Croatia. You know, I think at the end up, they're obviously slinging balls into the box. They're, they're creating a lot of chances. Overall, it would finish uh, remarkably. 16 attacks to 7 in favour of Croatia which again is, is far higher than any other game that uh, Germany have had again I go back to it's this on target expected goal Stewie it would almost double what Croatia had so again it's we talk about efficiency you know this the German efficiency whenever this team go forward they do the business right they, 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 they get it done they don't need 50 shots at goal they need 5 and they'll score 2 of them Um is there any, however, sort of remnants of this? So obviously this match would finish 2-1 in their favour, but is there any remnants of, well, we're now going to go and face the hosts, you have got our two main strikers injured, you know, yes, we've got a couple of days to patch it up here, but literally it is four days until game time. Do you think there's maybe a bit of concern in the German camp that if we if we had to bring out our big performance, quote-unquote, before, uh, before we really needed to? Um... Honestly, no. No, I uh, I think they're a better team than England. Right. To be honest with you, um, 
you know, Gaza's a good good player in the tournament, but he's not the best attacking centre mid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dieter Eilts, I think, is the best defensive centre mid. Mm-hmm. Um, Sammer is a great matchup with Shearer, and England have struggled a few times in centre mid, and if Sammer gets forward and gets himself on the ball, that could be a problem. Uh, Moller has a disappointing game here, but has had three good games before. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he, he could be a threat to England. Um, four strikers, but we're all uh, all capable of getting it done. No, I don't think so. No, I, th- I actually think Germany are slight favourites going into the game. I mean, it's, given the choice, you'd never be playing away from home sure. uh, in a tournament setting. But I just don't think on the games I've watched so far, England have done so much that Germany would be frightened of them or worried about them. Obviously, Shearer is a concern, but a neutral betting man picks Germany to win this by a goal, I think. Mm-hmm. Just before we sort of put a bow on the game, Stu, I just wanted to see your take on this one. This is a little quirk that I noticed. England-Spain is at, I believe, 3 o'clock right, on the 22nd of June. And the next quarter final was at six thirty at Anfield, and it was France Netherlands. Now, obviously, pre-tournament, they wouldn't have known how things would have worked out, right? But given that this is a tournament in England, right? England have just won to put another quarter final on the same day, a couple of hours later, when all the fans are out partying and do whatever. I just, I just blows my mind to think this a scheduled prospect have happened. Yeah, rough one. I'm not sure how those uh, how those TV ratings would have looked. But hey, if you were a fan and you were watching that game after the England one, good for you. My kind of guy or gal. Exactly. Okay, so with the uh, the, the semi finals obviously in place, Stu, let's let's go through. Uh, first of all, we'll go player of the round. Who did you you pick for that one? Sammer. Mm-hmm. Sammer. He's. Uh, a good defender. He actually makes a little bit of an error in the uh, in the goal, the Croatia score with a back backward pass to Freund that puts him under pressure that ultimately gets overturned. Mm-hmm. But um, if the winning the penalty doesn't atone for that, then scoring the winner definitely does. Um, he is a big, big contender for player of the tournament in my eyes. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm going to go for Karol Poborski and it, I think the obvious one here is the goal. Uh, again it was far better than I remember it being live and yes I've, I've saw it a number of times but I think really a goal for me is made better when you see how it's made or you know the pattern of play that leads up to it and I think that was the most impressive bit for me is how he's worked his opportunity in, in taking it but I think the, the other piece to this was was his first half performance that you mentioned earlier they've, they've switched him to a more a central role or certainly more withdrawn forward role if you like in the second half and he's done great but Everything you'd want in a top-level footballer was on display in that first half. He had the work ethic to get back as a full-back. He had the energy to get forward and transition to help Kuka and get round him and put deliveries into the box. And while you know they, they didn't obviously create a bunch of chances in this game, he was central to all of them, or at least played a key, a key part in all of them. And I think there's a tendency now that if your team is... You know, maybe playing on the back foot a little bit more is to accept that, okay, well, I, I'm a defender and that's my role first. And yes, that is the case for Poborski, but it's his, like I say, it's his energy to still get forward and create chances was was so impressive for me. Um, yeah. 
Okay then, so let's go to team of the round, Stu. Who did you pick? Um, I would go with the Czechs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I like how they set out. Um, I don't believe in criticizing negative play. I believe it's just as difficult to defend as it is to attack. And I think they were the best example in the round of formulating the game plan and executing it under game-like pressure. Yeah, no, for sure. And I sort of similar vein. I'm going to go for France. Just again, they look so impressive defensively. Blanc and Desai are again just a complete tour de force at the back. In this tournament, the two of them are able to defend pretty much anything. Again, especially against a team as as strong as Holland, where coming into it and to limit their attack play. Um, like we said earlier, single figures, a team that's, you know, dominated pretty much every match I thought was was excellent. But another little tip of the hat, and certainly somebody we, we maybe even could have mentioned in a player capacity as well as Jorkev. I mean, this guy's just uh, involved in everything, right? Set pieces, attacks, yeah. shots, crosses, the whole deal. I mean, they really have a lot of quality. And while, yes, they don't have natural width and natural wingers, it's the movement of, of France to, to have a lovely balance between attack and defence for me that I, I think for sure is it's certainly something we see a lot more now in modern football but at the time to see a system like that would have uh, <laughs> would maybe have scared a few players of being you yeah. to coach the team back then uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest I mean I don't think we're giving any spoilers out here in 2020 um, but had France went on to win this competition mm-hmm. I think Djokaev is in the conversation uh, for the award summer one. Right. And I think Djokaev is in conversation for player of the tournament. Sure. So let's go then, Stu, your uh, best 11 of the round. I know you put one together for us. I did. I did. And it was a tough one. And uh, there's some guys that, you know, played well and... uh, you know, Tony Adams was excellent for England, but he didn't make it. Um, Reitziger was... Excellent, but Hollenbury did make it, um, so they get an honourable mention. Uh, but the 11 that did make it, Seaman in goal, feels like every single game England played, he's had to come up big at some point and managed to do it. Uh, left back in a 4 4 2, Sergi from Spain, just a phenomenal performance from him. Um, centre back pairing of Matthias Sammer uh, and Laurent Blanc. Um, I would love to watch that in action in a live game together and on top of his great defensive performance Blanc's actually netted the win, winning penalty for France as well in the shootout uh, two ram at right back force of nature defending and going forward um, York I have left wing as you just said just fant- fantastic player uh, really good on the ball gets himself in some dangerous places wide central uh, just very creative player. Uh, Poborski on the right wing. I know he played both positions, but put him on the right wing here. Uh, man of the match in the Czech victory. And uh, I went with the old uh, classic pairing of a defensive and offensive centre mid. And Dieter Eilts of Germany, who uh, I think has been one of the best defensive midfielders in the entire tournament without getting a ton of coverage. Um, and Rui Costa, centre mid. Now, Portugal didn't break down the Czechs. But they did dominate possession for long spells. They did have the runner play, and they did, you know, persist in trying to uh, break them down. And Costa was a, a big, big part of that. Uh, I don't hold centre midfielders responsible for maybe not getting the goal when you've played well. 
And, uh, you know, if they had this front pair, I would suggest that they might have beat the Czechs because up front I've got Davos Suka and Pavel Kuga, which is the rhyme. It's awfully fun to say. Davos Suka was phenomenal. Um, he gets a move to Real Madrid after the tournament and it looked like it here. He's up to three goals, one goal behind Shearer, tied in second place with Klinsman. And Kuka, the job he was asked to do, very different to Suka. Suka was creating chances left and right. Kuka was asked to do a much more difficult job. Uh, be a target man for high balls, getting cleared, um, holding up play on his own, often with no support, um, and really plough alone for up front, which he did uh, to great effect. And coach Dusan Urin, uh, as I said, probably the best example of implementing and executing a game plan of all the all the eight teams in the round. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, folks, I think that's where we'll put a, a bow on it this week then. So, thanks for joining us. Um, as always, guys, head over to uh, retrofootballanalysis.com where you can see the match reports and data analysis. Uh, a couple other articles uh, are up on the site this week. Um, we've got obviously a ton of matches coming up over the course of the new season, so keep an eye out for those. We've got player guests on at the podcast as well coming up, which is going to be really exciting. Uh, we've got another project uh, over at modernfootballanalysis.com, which we'll speak about in further episodes as well, so be sure to take a look over there. And obviously our Twitter handle, which is at AnalysisRetro, um, and our modern one, which is at AnalysisModern. So all it leaves me to do is say thanks, Stu, for joining us tonight. Thanks, Ali. And I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you.